My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 108, which along with verses 33 to 43 of Psalm 107 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, June the 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We're continuing to look at Ezekiel's prophecy as we lead into Pentecost, which is tomorrow. Um, So today we're going to be in the 43rd chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, the first 12 verses. We're also continuing in the gospel according to Luke. Um, and that is in chapter 11, verses 14 to 23, and then in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. So in the Ezekiel passage, um, we've skipped forward again. We were in 34 yesterday, and the promise was made to the people that he would be their shepherd. He would put a shepherd over them, and that he would bless the people. The land would yield its increase. They would dwell securely, all those things. Uh, And then, now, we're going to move from that to the temple, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, the gate of Jerusalem is what he's talking about. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, from the set, the way the sun rises, right from that from that same direction. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And so we see that image again and again and again about the sound of many waters. We see it again in Revelation one when John hears the voice behind him that sounds like many waters, and that's always the the sign that it's the Lord speaking. And the earth shone with his glory. What a wonderful picture that is. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I'd seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I'd seen by the Kabar Canal, when the Spirit moved him, picked him up and moved him beside the Kabar Canal, where the exiles were, where he sat among them for a week, and he had visions there. And he's not saying, these are the same vision that I saw three times. No, he's saying, it's just as clear to me. And it's just the same as those visions. And I fell on my face. John, in the book of the Revelation, will say, I fell on my face as though dead uh, when he does. So it's a worship because he recognizes the Lord is present. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So he's in the inner court of the temple. There is no temple yet. They, they haven't begun to rebuild the temple yet, but, but he sees it all in the Spirit as though it were accomplished already. <clears throat> While the man was standing beside me, who is this man, the one who's speaking, uh, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. And remember what I told you yesterday, and that is the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God. The throne is in heaven, but his footstool, the mercy seat, is is on the earth. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings." by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. Now, the high places were alternative places of worship. So they would have, and when I say alternative places of worship, they were also offering uh, worship to other gods rather than Yahweh. And so that's what he's talking about when he says that, that these holy, these high places. 
by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. In other words, they're, they're, what they're saying is, is that they're, they're not making enough of a distinction between God and these gods, that they're putting them up side by side and treating them as though they're the same. Now, we can get into a long discussion if you'd like, and I'm not going to do it today because there's a lot more to, that I need to do to be ready to do this. But, it, but again, I'm going to mention to you Michael Heiser's work. And so he's going to look at particularly Psalm 82 and Psalm 89, where he's talking about the divine counsel and these alternative gods. And so these, um, there's, a, there's an idea there that there are other, quote, gods with little g's. They don't have the same properties as Yahweh himself does. And so what they're doing is they're treating these sort of uh, lesser beings as like him. He said, they defiled my holy name by their abominations that they've committed, so I've consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. In other words, you've got to get rid of these things like Josiah did when he reformed the the religion of Israel, and he got rid of the Asherah poles and the, the altars to Baal and all that. He says, if you'll do that, I'll dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they're ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, the arrangement, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design. In other words, you're going to rebuild the temple. And so you need to understand the pattern. Now remember, these people had been in Babylon 70 years. So the people that he's reminding... Most of them have absolutely zero recollection of that, and so he's giving the design of this uh, and pointing them back to the design that that Moses was given way back in the Exodus. And and what we believe about um, Ezekiel is is that Ezekiel in uh, captivity in Babylon was the one who started what we know later as the synagogue movement, places outside of Jerusalem where the Word of God is taught. And so that's what a synagogue is. It's, it's a way of continuing the tradition and understanding the teaching in order to be prepared to go back and rebuild everything that was lost. And so that's the point of the synagogue movement. And here God's saying, make these things known to these people. So it's a promise that they're going to go back and rebuild. And so he's giving them the arrangement, its exits, its entrances, its whole design. And make known to them as well its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws, all its statutes and carry them out. Prepare them for a return to the land and a return to blessing and a return to rebuilding the temple. This is the law of the temple, God says. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. It's God's dwelling place. Jesus is going to say that, no, that, that the temple is passing away. You see the glory of God now filling the temple of Jesus, and that's what it looks like at the transfiguration. And now, we're, we're, as we move towards Pentecost, we see God dwelling among his people by dwelling in his people. And therefore, from now forward, God speaks to his people through his people, through his word. And so we become temple of God is exactly the language that um, Paul uses, because you are the place where the Holy Spirit, God, dwells. And so that's the temple. So your body is intended to be a temple. You need to treat it with that kind of respect.
And it's what C.S. Lewis talks about when he talks about you've never seen a mere mortal. If you could see truly the person that stands before you, you would see either something that you would fall down and worship or that you would abhor as the worst demon on in, in the world. And he says what we are are is not even visible to us. But the, the law of the temple is that, that it is holy, and everywhere it is is holy because of that. And we need to, to see that in one another in the body of Christ. That needs to become clearer to us. In the Luke's gospel, Jesus is continuing, remember, towards Jerusalem. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out, out demons by Beelzebul, the lord of the flies, which is the prince of demons, he says, they say, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So you got two different opinions, right? They marvel, but some said he's doing this because he, he, ha, he is demonic himself. And so he's casting out this demon by the power of a greater demon. And then the others were saying, well, we just need a sign. <laughs> Seriously? He just released a man from, from a mute spirit, and he's now speaking, and, and you don't receive that as a sign. So there, there's two basic errors that are being made here. One is they're attributing Jesus' power to a, the greatest of the demonic powers, and then the other is to say, I, I'm not even seeing it as a sign from heaven. I'm missing what it is. I'm just seeing a healing here, and I'm not seeing it as a sign. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So you, so what you're trying to suggest, I suppose, is that, that there, there's, um, these two forces are fighting one another, but they, but they come from the same source? A demon is a demon is a demon, right? I mean, there's not multiple camps of demons. So what he's saying is, is that it doesn't make any sense. Just logically, what you just said doesn't make any sense. That I can't cast out demons by the power of a greater demon. No, I do it by, and now here he says, for if you say I cast out demons by Beelzebul, for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So there's a presumption that some of these others are doing the same thing. And what he says is, is that you're attributing what I do to the work of a demon. So who do you say that these others are casting out demons by? <clears throat> Therefore, they'll be your judges. The people who are doing these things are maybe the ones that go, no, 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 that's not right. <clears throat> but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he's, he's facing them with a stark choice, and it's a choice that they don't want to make. He said, look, if I do things by the, if you say that I do things by the power of Beelzebul, well, then who do your people exorcists do things by it must be the same source right so it's either that or if i do it by the finger of god then you have to acknowledge that the kingdom of god has come upon you you have to see the sign for what it is that if a demon is being cast out no it's got to be by the finger of god and so where does that language come from this finger of god language well it comes from exodus right when the plague of gnats comes when the plague of gnats comes moses strikes the dust and then the dust becomes gnats and Pharaoh asked his magicians to do the same. They said, we can't do that. We're unable to do that. That's done by the finger of God. This creation of life is, is done by the finger of God is the way they uh, respond to that. And so Jesus is pointing back to that in order to say this. 
So he's pointing in contrast, in the way that Moses was contrasted with the magicians of Pharaoh, Jesus is contrasting himself with those others, those other exorcists who are unable to do the things that he does. He does greater things. So when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when a stronger one attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus is saying, no, I'm an enemy to these demons. I'm a stronger one, and I attack and overcome, and, and I disarm them. Whoever is not against me and whoever does not gather, who is, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he's drawing a distinction between two camps of people in the same way that we saw yesterday when God said he would judge between sheep and between the goats. He's going to judge fat sheep and lean sheep. Here, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, is that you've got to choose. It's the same thing that Joshua says. It's the same thing that Moses says at the end of their lives. They're saying you've got to choose one way or another. It's the same thing that Elijah says on, on Mount Carmel after he defeats the prophets of Baal. He says, choose this day which, which one you'll serve. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If you're against me, then, then that's on you. But if you're not for me, then you're against me. So you can't be ambivalent. You can't not take a side, Jesus says. In the passage in Hebrews, we're, we're continuing with look at, looking at the, the temple in the same way that, that um, Ezekiel looks at the temple. And, and the Hebrews passage is going to give us a view of what happens there and how Jesus' uh, priesthood and his ministry is greater than, than that. So now, now even the first covenant, the one he said was obsolete, has regulations for worship at an earthly place of holiness, which is exactly what Ezekiel was told, that, that everything on the mountain was holy. He says, so there was a place, there was a regulation for worship, which is exactly what Ezekiel is told to teach the people, the laws and the customs and the traditions that regarded the, the temple itself. And it was an earthly place of holiness because that's where God's dwelling was. For a tent was prepared, and then he, now he's going to explain to us the, the design of the temple. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, so there's a curtain going into the holy place, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. So there's three things in the Ark. There's the manna, a sample of it, Aaron's staff that budded that proved that he was to be the, uh, the, the priestly line, and the tables of the covenant, the ones that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. He said, look, I'm not going to go into all the detail of this. I'm just explaining it to you, what, what was there. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, the first section being the holy place. <clears throat> but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, because remember, he has to take blood in there to throw onto the Ark of the Covenant to seal the judgments for the year. He takes blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the unintentional sins of the people are those that people are, are sort of not even aware of, because it, it's just part of life that, that causes these things. It's not sins done with a high hand, for instance, premeditated sins. That's not what he's, what he's atoning for here, because there, there's other things to atone for that. There are other sacrifices that can be made to atone for those sins, but those sins that are unintentional, 
those things that what, what the recognition is, is that we know that even if we try to do everything right, we're still not. We're, we're going to get some things wrong. And so that's so it's, it's, we didn't confess them because we're not even aware of them. And so that, that's what they're talking about there. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as that first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In the same way that Josiah's reforms restored the people to good fellowship with God, Jesus now restores fellowship with God and reforms the worship of the people by taking all that into himself. So there's no longer a need for the temple because the one sacrifice once offered is sufficient for all sin, intentional and unintentional. And so there's a, what's needed is just repentance. There's no reason for sacrifices to continue, and if there's no reason for sacrifices to continue, then there's no need for all the elaborate ritual involved in making expiation for sin because Jesus has already done that. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come— present tense, or present perfect, really, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So what he's saying is, there again, he's going back to that platonic ideal that we talked about yesterday, that the things on earth are a copy of the things that are in heaven. And so what he's saying is that Jesus went through the greater thing, that this time, this time of reformation has come, and so now Jesus has gone through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. So he's gone into the ideal, into the very throne room of God. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. So it's once offered, period, end of sentence. There, there, no other sacrifices are necessary. None are pleasing to God in an eternal way, in the way Jesus' was. <clears throat> For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the flesh is one thing, but the conscience, the spirit, the soul is another thing. And, and so we have been given the Holy Spirit. So our consciences have been seared in order that we might serve him and that we might die to those dead works, those things that we thought would get us salvation, that would make us fit to, to serving him as children of the living God. Now it's just a service. It's not a work that we do to, to get something. No, it's, it's a joyful service for the one who has redeemed us and who has saved us to eternal life. That's the important thing. And then now we have that temple in us because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand these things. It's important that we align ourselves fully with Jesus.